Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I sometimes just feel like a blind cat bumping into walls doing this. Duncan Nickel. Alright, well, as long as you don't cough up any murderous assassins, that that's fine, Duncan. You can remain a blind cat bumping into the walls. How are you doing this week? I'm doing really good, I'd say. It's been a... It's, we're, uh, we're starting... I'm going to say we're starting a heatwave in England. Yes. I'm enjoying the heatwave. How about you, Duncan? I am not enjoying the heatwave. Oh dear, our first fight on the podcast. <laughs> no, I'm enjoying... See, this is the thing. This is the thing with the heatwave. Because I've enjoyed the last, like, two to three days of it. That's uh-huh. fine. What's not fine is, like, the forecast that we're not going to get rain again for, like, 40 days. You know, I do appreciate that that's bad. And I'm not going to enjoy seeing my local parks go all brown. But also, I'm a summer boy. I really like being out in the sun and, like, having my sleeves showing, you know? I mean, if that's a point of, like, arrogance or self-confidence. I, it, it's not, I mean, it, it one, it's not a point of arrogance. Two, it is a point of self-confidence. And three, no, I just like being out and in, in dressed in nice summer clothes. Summer is my favorite season. Everyone else is like... I like autumn. I like to see the leaves change. No, you don't. You're a liar. You just like the pumpkin spice. Okay, no. Spring is clearly the best season. It's that time of rebirth, re-energizing. It's the worst season. It's the worst season. It's when you're bouncing back from winter. It's the excitement of the days getting longer. April is the cruelest month, Duncan. Why? It's wonderful. I I don't remember. It's been a while since I've read The Wasteland. Oh, no, I can't stand the heat. I'm. It's going to get to the point where I'm just going to start, like, shutting down. I'm really happy I'm in an air-conditioned office, to be honest. Mm. And I've got, like, the only air-conditioned office um, in my factory as well. Mm. So it's like, okay, I stay here. I stay in this position <laughs> just so I can stay in this office. And if I get promoted, I'll be like, do I stay in this office? I'm not moving. In my last job, uh, before my current one, my um, my office was in, like, a Victorian building. So, like, you know, not modern infrastructure. It trapped heat like crazy. So when summer came around, all the windows were open. Everyone had a personalized fan. Like, it was intense. And there would be days where it would be so hot people wouldn't come into work, and I'd be the only one in the office. So I'd have, like, sometimes, like, two fans pointing at me. To be honest, that's the bit that always gets me, because, like, there is a point, particularly, well, no, actually, for both, like, manual labor and, like, kind of intense critical thinking kind of jobs, Mm. where you just get so hot, you're like, I can't... Like, you can't trust me. I'm too hot. You can't trust any decision I make right now. <laughs> oh, no. Whatever don't decision fall I make, heat madness. Half, half of my brain's thinking, I just want to be cool. I just want to be cool. I can't so, do this. Another a thing I have in, uh, in the I want it to be really hot camp is that um, next week I'm going on a hiking trip to the highlands of Scotland. And it's already probably going to be cold and miserable out there. So I need every joule of heat I can get. See, I'm actually at the point now where I'm, like, talking to my partner, like, you know, if it gets much worse, we might have to relocate to Scotland. Like, we're going to have to take shelter in the Highlands, the last refuges of decent cold weather. Um, But, besides that tangent... Yes, Duncan? It may have been hot, but that didn't mean I didn't get to read some really great stuff. So, obviously, we're talking yes, about... Yes, Duncan, this book is not about talking about the weather, it's about fantasy novels. Exactly, and obviously, besides the Black Tongue Thief, which is we're going to be discussing today in book club, I actually read a few other pieces. Oh, now I spoke. 
in our last uh, session, Geordie, that I was like, oh, I'm reading loads of other books and getting away from comics. Yeah, that fell down this mm. uh, fortnight. I went straight back into comics for a bit. Didn't, didn't you read like a comic book about Martians last last time? Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, my God, I've not kept this up at all. Well, on a, on a, the- I want to find out what happened next in the Martian comic book. What happened next? Didn't read that one, mate. I actually got into a different sci-fi series, which I have completely fallen right. in love with. Have you ever heard of Valerian and Loreline? Is uh, Valerian is in a Valerian city of a thousand planets? Yes, that one. Yes, I have heard of it. I know that it was a successful French comic book yep. and a very unsuccessful movie. That it was indeed that film. I have seen it. I think it. I can't, I don't even want to, no, I don't want to defend it. It was bad. The, the main to, the key to Valerian Loreline is that dynamic. So it's a French sci-fi series started in like the 50s. Massively influential. Mm. It's one of those ones that they're like, oh, look, look all the parallels you can see to Star Wars. Mm. Um, and you really can. Now, I've only read like the first six volumes. So the way it works is each volume is like 50 pages and it's one contained arc. Mm. And Valerian Loreline are like, agents for the galactic government and so each volume mm-hmm. it's like we're sending you on another mission and it has you know out there kind of space travel they go to different planets come really different kind of worlds um mm, there's so it's very cosmopolitan very cosmopolitan very, there's time travel stories the the range in there is really impressive um it also has a really and how long was it well how long was it published you said it came out in the 1950s but like did it get written for a long time 2010 Wow. Um, and it's now had its reboot or continuation. I'm not quite familiar. It has started up with a different artist and writing team. So it, it ran. Um, not that much, mm. though, to be mm. honest. I've already read about a th- just under a fourth of all the content. Um, How many books have you read? I've only read six, and there's only about 24 or 27. I'm not exactly sure on the number. Sure. So I guess it's sort of like, you know, like Tintin. It's a storied, very important comic book series, but actually when you break it down, you know, it's one artist writing for a long period of time, so it's there's not that much. No, it's not. Uh, apparently later on it does get a bit more serial, but the first one was very episodic. Mm. But what was already clear in the very start of it, which the movie completely dropped, is the core relationship between Valerian and Loreline. Like, mm. it's very nice to come into it. It's not a uh, will they, won't they, let's see their relationship blo- blossom. It's like, you know, from the very beginning, they're like, Oh, my love, my darling. Um, mm. They have arguments. They move. It's very nice to just see two characters who are in a relationship. Sure, because we don't actually get a lot of that in serialized fiction where you just have characters who are together and then stay together. You know, outside of things like sitcoms, in which you're all about sort of, aside from occasional flurries of adventure, mostly about the mundanity of life and adding a bit of humor to it, most series culminate in the I love you. And then they wrap up pretty soon after. Exactly. And that's, I think, why, one of the main reasons I'm really enjoying it. I like the fact that like, they have really decent, like, they bicker, they argue. They're not always exactly on the same page. Um, mm. I like the fact that quite often, obviously, coming from the 1950s, but then we'll do something that is kind of misogynistic. But then mm-hmm. you can have Loreline just call him a misogynist and tell him to get lost over it. And mm. so it just kind of eases that out as well. That it's like, okay cool and it just helps me kind of move forward for a lot of it it's like it's depicting a world that is 
reflects some like 50s values but you've got characters mm. that are constantly rebuking it and being like excuse me this is the far future you should really be better by now <laughs> um so that's yeah, really just nice. like early so Star i Trek. highly recommend it it is you can get all the volumes as complete editions i do recommend it if you're interested in sort of the sci-fi roots um and particularly volume two i do recommend people start with volume two which is the empire of thousand worlds mm-hmm. um because the first one's a time travel story and i don't think it quite represents the wider tone um sure the author hadn't found his had found his uh spot yet exactly um highly recommend but mm. very much off track for what we normally talk about geordie what about you i have not managed to read anything uh i have been way too busy with work and other commitments I've been preparing for my aforementioned upcoming hiking trip, and for a very specific reason, despite really, really enjoying this book, I struggled to get through it. I only finished it yesterday afternoon. What? And it's not a long book. I know. It's not a long book, and I will tell you the reason for this, Duncan. I will tell you the reason. I listened to this on audiobook. On the whole, this is a very good audiobook. It was read by the author, and therefore he, like is very precise about the pronunciation of names, which I appreciate a lot. But here was a serious, serious problem. Dude spoke incredibly quietly. So either I would have to pay a lot of attention, or I would have to crank up the volume to the point where I'd be risking my ears, which I didn't want to do for obvious reasons, because I don't want to lose my hearing. But it also meant that I could not listen to this book, read this book in any situation where there was noise going on. I couldn't listen to it on the way to work. I couldn't listen to it at the gym. I couldn't listen to it if a car went past outside. Ooh. I had to it had to be studious silence. So I had to really struggle to find situations in which I could actually listen to it. I can I can feel you there. I can see that scenario and like I find it incredibly hard personally. Like I can sit down in the evening mm-hmm. and just read a book. I can't just lie there and listen to an audio book. Like I find that very challenging. I have to be doing something else. Well, that's because I don't lie there. Like I can't I don't have time to just sit around. I never have free evenings. All right. Just show off your active social life. I have plenty of time to sit around and read a book. It's great fun. Only Duncan would be like, "Oh man, Julie's having a really hard time balancing all his commitments." And be like, "Ugh, brag." Well, I enjoy the time I spend sitting around reading, but yeah, no, well done, mate. I'm sure you, get you do look good. I'm sure you do. I'm sure it's very valuable for you. But the Black Tongue Thief. Black Tongue Thief. Right, Geordie. Should we? I said it was very good. What do you think, Duncan? I was about to say, should we just jump in and say what we really think? Yeah, you think it's really good. I think it's. I think it's very. It was very enjoyable. It was very enjoyable. I had mm. a lot of fun reading this book. Um, the way it's written is spot on the mm. yeah no actually no that's actually it this is the way the story is told is really fun the story mm-hmm. itself i don't think it's going to leave nearly as much of an impact on me um i think this is definitely feels like a book that's awaiting a sequel it's like mm-hmm. i want to learn more which is obviously good but this wasn't like a it didn't have like an emotionally satisfactory ending for me it sort of they felt like and that's the page count cool you know, it did have an end. I'm not saying it didn't have an end. Like there was, you know, the, the quest that were initially on. Yeah, but was it's, the, it's the first part of a series, and it very much feels like the first part of a series. And that's not bad. But I do feel, 
I don't know. Maybe it's just because we just finished a trilogy, which has such a really nice like that was mm. the end. I feel emotional satisfaction <laughs> in this. I am so happy. Yeah, I but it's nothing. Um... It's just like eh, there, that was fun. Cool. I mean, I, I think what you're getting at, Duncan, is that this is fundamentally quite a simple story. It's a road trip. You know, you have to go from A to B, and when they get to B, you know, there's more places to go. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that in a series. Most fantasy is about going from A to B. And this is a simple story told extremely well. I think you and I would both agree that the actual the prose and the voice of this book is its strongest card. By quite the distance. The world building is pretty good as well. I'm not going to lie. This is a very nice example of world building. I like how the world building is done. Um, but it is the voice that really sells it and brings you in. The size, the word choices, the spelling of words. I really like the fact that he always puts a Y into the word shit to make sure you know it's shite. Um, so that was really nice. I do think then this is a book where if you pick this up and in the first 50 pages, you're like, I don't I don't like how he's writing. Like, if that's not grabbed you, don't don't push through. Like, the plot isn't going to get better. I don't think it's going to capture you later on. You need to be having fun with the way it's written, kind of on the off, for this to be the book for you. Exactly. You have to just find it valuable, like, the way in which this book is written to very much capture the voice of someone who is, you know, foul-mouthed and clever, but not really in control of his life. You know, it's it feels like you're reading about a gutter snipe, because you are. And it captures that really nicely. Our main character... Kinch? Kinch, yes, well done. Very nice. I'm in character Kinch. I like the way that he sees the world. Mm. And I think it's very nice for the story, the backstory that he's given. I like mm. the fact that he is both coming into this. So Kinch, he went to the Thieves Guild. Mm. And yeah. thinking of the This back is of- like potentially the most basic backstory possible. And it's only elevated by the fact that Kinch, like, provides a fresh perspective on it. The idea in the world, the Thief Guild, almost like, <laughs> to a comparison to personal life, you know, you go to university and you're mm. gambling that the career it gives you is going to outweigh the debt it puts you in. Exactly, and, yes. And that is Kinch's put on the Guild. The Guild, you get into debt going for your thief training. That is something mm-hmm. that happens. And the idea is that you'll spend most of your thiefing career paying off that debt to the Guild. And while you're paying off that debt, you're their body. They will give you instructions and you will do it. But I like the fact that Kinch, at one point, he gets asked, like, do you ever regret it? And he's like, no, because it gives me the opportunity to live this life of mm. magic, of, of being on the edge, of taking chances, of being a sneaky yes. little thief. What the thing, about, the thing about this book is that fundamentally, you know, because we see everything through Kinch's eyes, his recollections, it's told as him telling you a story. You know, he's looking back, and whilst we don't really know who he's speaking to, there is some understanding that he has somehow managed to communicate with us, probably not by actually speaking through the pages of a book, but perhaps with someone he's meeting in a pub at some point, or maybe with his grandchild or something. But I think the world which this book paints would look so different if any other character was the main character. Because they'd all have these different perspectives, and we understand that so much of what we learn about the world is through Kinch's eyes and through Kinch's black tongue. A really good example of that is the honourable warrior character, um, mm. Gavler? Galva. Galva, thank you. 
I wrote that down wrong in my notebook then. Galva. <laughs> so Galva is a warrior from the wars. She is driven purely by her honour and her duty. And I just, mm-hmm. I love the fact, because this almost puts me in mind of when um, I'm playing like a D&D game. Mm-hmm. And like, you know that everyone at the table, pro- yeah, that sees their character normally as the hero in their own stories but then you've got that lovely that paladin catch is just like why am i journeying with this evil thief and this thief's like why am i putting up with this paladin's like stick in the mud won't do what's necessary to get the job done attitude and i love the fact that if we were in galva's eyes she'd literally be looking at kinch and be like oh my god so much of what he does is terrible and problematic but i'm keeping him around i think that you are painting it galva far too basically because the important distinction about Galva is, yes, she's very dutiful. Yes, she's very focused on her way of doing things. And there's friction between her and Kinch. But what you kind of have painted her as is a goody two-shoes. And she is not a goody two-shoes. She is just as cutthroat a killer as Kinch, if not a great deal more so. Hard, lawful, neutral. And I think that um, this sort of, you know, you might say buddy cop dynamic is part of what makes this book work. I think that, you know, Galva and Kinch make a really solid pair. You know, they can, you can create humor out of their disagreements. You can create drama out of them being unable to properly understand each other. And it's interesting that, you know, she's a foreigner. Kinch, she's from a different culture and Kinch doesn't really understand her. He doesn't properly speak her language. So a big part of this book is simply like he has perspective on her you know, as a death worshipper, he thinks she's a weirdo. I mean, aren't most death worshippers a little bit odd? A little. A little. Just saying, I'm just trying to think of an example in all of fiction where I think where the death worshippers are shown as, like, the normal, reasonable good guys. I think there is a lot of, like, movements. The circle of life sort of thing. The Lion King really did a number on, um on people's perception of death and be like, oh, it's a cycle. Yeah, it probably is a cycle, but you don't got to be so chipper about dying, man. That's not the fun bit of the cycle, is it? They think it is. Galva thinks it's the best part. I know. I'm, there's bits of that. I'm just, when I, I almost forget that that's her attitude. And then after certain mm. characters die, Kinch is like, and Galva was like really happy because she knew that they were together. I'm like, that's what we, like, tell ourselves. It's very interesting to yeah, have a exactly. character who is like, no, that is, she thinks that. That is what she's feeling. Yeah. One of the stories I have, when I'm writing right now, it, like, very slowly in the background, is about a character who, who has this, this sword, and the, the magic of this sword is that if you kill someone, they will go to paradise, uh, which means that you're in a difficult situation where every single murder you do is morally justifiable. And the person who holds the sword doesn't really like that, but the sword keeps telling him, like, it's fine, just kill this guy. Like, he'll go to paradise. He'll be free forever. I mean, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it would obviously be like, yeah, but I don't want to kill my arch enemy with you. He can get a normal knife. That is, that is, that is something that will come up. So, um, not, uh, we're not talking about that book, but we're talking <laughs> about The Black Tongue Thief. And I think... You know, the duo of Galva and Kinch is really, really solid in this book. A bit more solid than the duo of Kinch and um, Norigal. Yes, Norigal. Norigal is the love interest. Yeah, she's um, a love interest for Kinch. I'm trying to think a bit more. She She's a young magic user. 
Um, mm-hmm. I like the fact that she's not fully into her powers, the elements mm-hmm. of her not quite landing the spells or being quite frantic with the spells. I think that's the element. It's like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Rummaging for a kind of bag of all her tricks and potions. Yeah. So that's quite but not in like a, but not in a moog way, in a more serious way. <laughs> yes, that is true. I think actually, you know, let's let's grab onto that a little bit. Not in a moog way, because unlike something like Kings of the World, because there was a bit, Geordie, where I would have described this book a bit like Kings of the World. A bit. I, I did stop that. Uh, in terms of a, uh, you know, there's quite a sense of humour in here, and we're going I would on call our this adventure. A black comedy. Black comedy. Lots of it, mm. but. The Black Tongue Thief, I think, just had a bit more of a sharp edge to it. Yeah. The Black Tongue got say a bit it has darker. A barbed edge to it. It is a, it is rough at times. So let's kind of like go into that now. The author uh, Christopher Boomen, um, he historically this is his first like main fantasy book, and I did a little research. He's written, he's published six books. Black Tongue Thief Most being the most recent. Historical fiction, right? He writes horror. Oh. Well, All his previous five books were horror. And when I heard that, I went, yep, see that. Yeah, see yeah that there's loud definitely and clear. horror elements to this book. Uh, I think I think one of the strongest things about it... So, before the goblins showed up, I still thought the goblins were the best part of his book. And when they showed up, it got even better. So, the sort of big event that's happened in the world in the past 30 years has been a series of goblin wars i think three right duncan yep three goblin wars uh i can't remember them all top of my head but what i really like about them is that one of them is called like the daughter's war yes yes it goes it's such through a good name like, oh, yeah. for a war first all the young first all the noble knights went to war then all the, like the stable hands went to war and then finally all the daughters had to go to war mm-hmm and I love the fact, exactly. brilliant world building, amazing world building, really yes, early on. Yes, that really can't be understated. You know, as someone who doesn't prioritise world building as something that makes a book great, this book has really good world building. Did this not, did this not a little bit really, like hit you? Because it got me like square in the centre. And that's the bit when he goes, uh, Kish like describes, oh, and it's because of that war, it's really odd to see a woman to the ages of like 25 and like 35. You mean a man between the ages of 25 and 35? Yes, you're right. Was it not? It's odd to see like a mother of a certain because age, of a th- I think he says later. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's the Thresher's War. Like, Kinch is like, like children of men. Like, he's unusually young. He's 23 years old. So you normally see like little boys. And then there's this huge gap where um, there are no, no one between the age of 15 and 30. And that's because he's a draft dodger. Like, that's something that's... I wouldn't even say it's revealed. It's almost the first time I heard it was a Goblin War. It's like, yeah, and Kench dodged for draft. <laughs> he dodged for draft. And um, so much about the world is communicated through their reaction to the Goblin War, how they fare in the Goblin War, and how people treat them because of the Goblin War. For example, everyone in this book gets extremely emotional about horses because all the horses are dead. You know... Only female horses are left, all the stallions are dead, and they are an endangered species that's on the edge of dying out. I mean, this is such a really nice, just subversion in the fantasy genre. How often mm. do they ride on horses or horse-like mm. creatures? And it's like, yeah. oh yeah, they walk everywhere now. Oh yeah, they just have their pack donkey. Like, there's mm-hmm. no cavalry charge. That was the kind of the nice moment. It's like, obviously I was thinking, 
somehow this can be a cavalry charge. Like that's going to be an epic moment when there's somehow a horse charges. But mm. um, no, like, yeah, there's no cavalry. No, the cavalry aren't coming to save them. I think that's almost the bit, the link that formed in my head. It's like mm. that's gone in this world. And also there's a great scene with um, Galva where she rides sort of a, an artificial horse and mm. the description of her yes, like, enjoyment of so it. Much. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I, I'm i not a big horse rider. I can get on a horse and not fall off and generally Good ask it to go left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't go too fast, please. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, it is a certain experience. And I'm like, oh, yeah, in this world where, like, we don't have any other options for, like, transport, to lose that and to lose that, like, emotional connection that people have with the animal. For me, it's more mm. like thinking about if we lost all dogs. Yeah, so exactly. Be like, no, man's best friend. So mm-hmm. that was really nice. And also, because he doesn't explain it immediately, and I think this is important for all of this world building. We're getting so far away from your original point about goblins, I'm sorry. But mm. all of this world building, I feel like he does a great job where through conversation and a bit of like Kinch's like internal dialogue. Exactly. He'll reference things lightly first. Yeah. Always just a ref, a slight ref, quick reference to a goblin war. And then later mm-hmm. he'll give us like the actual history of it. Same with the horses. It's like very early on, you can see like, there's like no horses or there's a little comment about like, Oh, it wouldn't be a stallion or them having to get donkey or something like that happens very early. Or the war corvid. Yes. Yeah. The giant bird. This is fantastic. It's because this book has such a strong voice, because you're seeing things so concretely through Kinch's eyes and his words that you can pull this off. This is what I'm I'm always trying to do this. I'm always trying to communicate information about the world I'm writing naturally through the character's voice and not through just narration exposition dumps, which, to be honest, I'm way too critical about myself writing and plenty of people pull it off. But this book just nails it. It just nails it. Which is interesting, because there are quite bits in this book, Geordie, where I'd say Kinch is just telling us history. Like, the the scene mm-hmm. is him sitting in a cell, and the page I'm reading is just him telling me stuff. But yes, it never but because felt it's, off. It, it feels like him telling you stuff. It doesn't feel like the book has stopped. It feels like this is where Kinch's head is at. This is a sort of a little diatribe that he's going to go on whilst he's talking to you, Duncan, in a pub. And I can't wait to see if the series actually ever, like, feeds into that, or that's just the voice, you know. This is the tale I of wonder. Kinch. Yeah, I mean, it could be him before the gallows at the end of the book. The last two chapters could be first-person present tense, because it could be about him uh, bravely walking up to the gallows to die, you know? <laughs> oh, I love how you started out, you're like, it's him telling the story to his grandchildren by the fire, and now you're like, yeah, it's his, like final death no i mean I, I i never believed it when i said that there's no way kinch has a happy ending this book <laughs> is too miserable for that which takes me back to goblins take it away so we said about how like the world has been so messed up by goblins there's no horses no men between the age of 15 and 35 like a bunch of the but uh, and we see all the other interesting ways in which the world has changed for instance this is really understated i i immediately distracted myself but i, I had to recall this it's briefly mentioned that essentially one particular country is basically having like a feminist revolution, like women's rights are changing drastically because um, because suddenly they're the ones who get to call shots. It's just like after World War II. But uh, I distracted myself. I talked too much about the world building. All right, goblins. So the, the goblins eventually do show up and they're terrifying. Geordie, little game here. Did you do what I did? 
And I genuinely had a theory running up until this they first appear. Where I went, maybe it's going to be a twist. And actually the goblins have an equally intricate and are like uh, noble creatures. And this is a misunderstanding, you know, and it could have been just any other human nation they went to war at. Like, did you ever have I that thought? Th- I thought that goblins would never appear in the story. I thought that in order to avoid the possibility of you know, having an evil race and the nasty implications that come along with that, they would never appear in the story. But I was quite wrong about that. They do appear, and he does some interesting things with them, and they're scary. They are scary. These are these scary. completely outshine. I'm trying to think of kind of equivalents of evil races. Um, even I think like Tolkien's orcs, I, I actually would rather have a run-in with than these things. Yes. The first really interesting thing about goblins is take away a lot of the assumptions you can make about goblins. Here's one thing you can say which you're prepared for. They are short. They're about less than four feet tall. That is basically the only thing which you know about goblins in this book. They're clever, fair enough, but they are completely asymmetrical. They hate symmetry. That's why they don't like us. We are so different to them that they don't have a balanced body plan. The goblins have sort of one, I'm going to describe as normal hand, but then yes. the other side of their body, it's like a withered, shortened arm that ends in just like a hook. Mm. I kind mm. of pictured that kind of that, that main kind of toe claw on like a Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so scary. There's a wonderful scene where a goblin like grabs hold of someone's arms, but mm. obviously he doesn't have a hand on his hand, so he just digs his hook in. It's Oh, yeah. there's a visceralness to it. I also like the fact their teeth are described as like almost more like shark's teeth. No, uh, they're not described as shark's teeth. They are nope. not. They are described as river fish teeth, which are much, much scarier. I don't know if You're I want to like, Google that. Well, think about an anglerfish. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. That, so now they're more horrifying. Thank you. Thank you. They're now more horrifying yeah. to me. And they don't have chins. Yeah, what does that even mean? They don't have a jaw. I don't know what it means. Do they have, like, lamprey mouths? Do they just suck on things? I think it's just that they don't have very defined chins. Um, Yeah, I kind of view it then. It must be, like, you've got that lower, like, bit of the jaw, and then it must just simply go back. Like, you've got the tooth line, and then it just, like, Mm. slides straight back to the neck. I agree. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you know, we've all seen people with no chin. Just more of that. No, that'd be the opposite. Most people with no chin, we mean that they have like a lot of additional body mass that comes out. That's not what I mean, but hey ho. I just mean, you know, the inbreds, whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> yes, they are, and they're done. We talk about being an evil race. I think that's something to really kind of dive into there. Like, these are done as a bit of an evil race. There is no mm. subversion. These are scary. And they're monstrous. Yes. And their main reason for hating us is because we are different and mm-hmm. we are tasty. Yes. And here's, here's the additional twist. They're the colonizers. Like, they're encroaching on our territory. It's very interesting to see that in uh, work of fantasy literature. So mm-hmm. many times we've got that. Is man really the evil one here? Are we encroaching on the natural world of magic? And here it's like, mm-hmm. no, they are coming for us and our kingdoms. They are, exist in such a different moral alignment that communication is almost impossible. Like, there are countries of... that have tr- truces with them, and those countries will still kill a goblin on sight if they get a chance. 
it's that lack of empathy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think we talked about this a long time ago in the last episode of Empire the Vampire. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the same thing. Duncan, like, we're not allowed to talk about it. Please, no. There's, uh, I kind of feel, uh, so, you know, due to my kind of personal beliefs and, and it's multifactored, I, I'm vegetarian and I look at like, mm. well, you know, let's have a little bit more empathy with other creatures. I, I'm of the opinion, you know, probably can feel a bit of pain. Let's be a bit nicer. So I really like these subversion stories when it puts humanity in the box of like, you are just cattle in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Like we can't empathize. You're not intelligent because you're so other. We're so other mm-hmm. to the goblins that they just cannot empathize with us on any level. And they just see us as either a means to an end in the few places where truth does hold, or they just mm-hmm. see you as dinner. So there is a scene in this book where, like, one of our companions... Sorry, no, there are two scenes in this book where two of our companions are killed and eaten by goblins. The first time is, like, handled really well in, like, a, a way which is horrifying, but also, like, not... How should I put it? It's horrifying, but not totally grotesque. Uh, and this is nothing had to do with my personal sensitivities. I just feel like it is done with, uh, with delicacy. You know, the scene is given a very dark, but still very true emotional heart. A bit like something from the library at Mount Char. It's very good because it keeps to Kinch's perspective. Um, and Kinch, as a character, doesn't want to stare the horror in the face. So he's not there describing to you because he was looking at them break bones and suck out marrow. He is sobbing in the corner, looking away, seeing a happy song to himself while it plays out behind him. And I'm like, that is his character. That's what he would want to experience. So that's him Mm. coping. And I think, I agree, that that scene's done very well. There's one more scene like that, which has the risk of not being done as well. Maybe we'll talk about it, but... We'll talk about it. We're talking about malt. That's coming up. Well, that's not what I'm talking about, oh. but hey-ho. So, I f- briefly get distracted for a second. I'm very surprised how good the songs are in this book. Not all of them rhyme, but um, they're much better than most of the songs you see in a fantasy novel. And bold to write songs into a fantasy novel in 2020. It is. It's seen as very... God, we're jumping and jiving here. Uh, it's seen as very Tolkien-esque. Mm thing uh putting songs in i do feel it really invites that uh tolkien comparison which is surprising in this book with a lot of this book i think rejects a lot of the overriding notions uh from mm-hmm. lord of the rings even though it's still a, a quest story and a journey which is quite surprising for me um mm-hmm. so yeah having song, i think it's a brave choice it was done best than i've seen recently i think this is a really good example of songs but i'm not gonna lie geordie i, I um by the time we got to about the halfway point i did start skipping them so, like, the uh, the emotional song in the uh, in the bowel of a goblin ship cannot be skipped. It's it's really it just really works. The fact that the characters out of that moment choose to sing, and the fact that singing is so well established a part of a story, something that people value, something people care about. You know, joke bawdy songs get time to be heard. So when this song is sung to give comfort to a man who's about to be eaten, it hits different. Again, not all the songs are good. One of them's about a cat. So, just before we move on then from the goblins, how do you feel then about them being just an evil race? Because like, I was so prepared for some sort of subversion. I liked it. Like, it's it's so, like you say, it's almost a subversion of the subversion. It was so unexpected that they are nakedly evil. 
And what I liked about it is that they don't feel like a fantasy race. They feel like an alien species. And maybe that's how we should depict some, you know, like, different species of creature in, in these. Like, it felt more like something out of a sci-fi novel than a fantasy. It was novel. It's kind of that kind of otherness. I, I often feel, again, going back to Dragon Lord of the Rings, in the scenes there where he writes orcs, they could still almost be people. Yeah, but just... They're evil, but they're just fellows, really. Yeah, there's... But these creatures are, like I said, that alien, their self, is their culture. Every element of them is so different, and it adds to that divide, to that lack of communication, um, which works Do you want to talk about Malk? Yeah, we can talk about Malk. Okay, so on our journey, we meet several characters who team up for little bits of time. Malt is someone that's brought in about a third of the way in, and his primary role is to shine a light on the fact that Kinch uh, dodged the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a shock for us. Fits his character perfectly. But it's sort of a, a point of shame between him and the other characters. Particularly Galva, who's a very honourable one, who went to war. And there's a little bit of tension there. Malt, I don't think, is handled very well, Geordie. No, his ending is a huge letdown. His endings are let down, and his development along the way, I think, has issues. He's brought in, and I thought, to serve a point. But then he keeps living, mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, I see where we're going here. Malt's now going to, like, have a friendship. They're kind of going to move past what happened. Yeah. In their, and they're going to, through their joint anxiety, Malt's going to go, oh, do you know what, Kinch, he went, he ran away and joined the Thieves' Guild, but he's not like a bad guy at heart. He was just young and scared to go to war. That isn't the worst thing in the world. Or, you That's know, right. They never actually have that moment where they sort of um, to understand each other. They sort of just keep tolerating each other. And eventually, Kinch is sad to see Mulk go. But it just, um, there's no moment where you like, you have this moment of catharsis where they have to really confront each other. Even though they're stuck on a desert island together at one point. That conversation never takes place, and although we transition from, like, Kinch being like, Mott's going to stab him in the back, to we're going on this journey together, and Mott, even mm-hmm. at one point, can drop off the journey. He's done, but he's like, no, I'm going to stick with you guys. I felt mm-hmm. there wasn't given enough banter, enough just fireside chat between the two. That actually There's had... actually more banter after he's dead. Right. Like... In, in two scenes, Kinch imagines, what would Mulk say in this moment? And they're actually like, and I, what I actually like about it is that it doesn't sound like Mulk. It sounds like what Kinch thinks Mulk sounds like, but I'm like, I don't recognize this as, as this character. I thought that was actually really well done. It's such an interesting take. So yes, past Mulk's mm-hmm. death, which is the another goblin death, uh, we get these which like... Which we're going to talk about right now. Oh... It's not, it's challenging. So in this scene, set it up, we're in a town. This is in a nation that has a truce with the goblins. Goblins and men mm-hmm. can live by side by side. And by side by side, we mean there's basically a goblin town in the larger town and a big chain running round yep. it and a do not cross sign. And if you go into goblin town, they're allowed to eat you. Yeah. And you're... if the goblins come into human town, they're allowed to be beaten to death. So it's one of those truces. It's an interesting truth, though, because then you're like, how are you, what's the point of setting up this goblin town is anyone who, like, goes to have a chat either side dies. Goblin silver. Goblin silver. Uh, I found this a little bit contentious because you're like, yeah, but, like, how do you set up a business relationship 
where the, your runners might get eaten and their runners might get like you literally meet at the chain and go here's your product thank you for our product i don't know Duncan, I have you ever heard of something called nations sometimes people who don't like each other have to get along to the point of which that one nation is literally just eating your um your population if they wander too close to the border metaphorically yes fair enough so in this particular scene they're walking alongside the chain and a goblin yeah. is antagonizing molt referencing the wars mm-hmm. and the rest of them they're like just cross the street and ignore him and molt won't and then Malt gets pulled in with the goblin into a pool. Where they both You re- need to be way more specific about this. He does not get pulled in. He gets goaded into it. And then what happens is you have this scene where it turns out there's a game the goblins and the locals play, which is called the pull. And since you're not allowed to cross, and you're not allowed to fight the goblins on the other side, but if they come to your side, it's fair game. And if you go to their side, it's also fair game. This goblin says, if you can pull me across, you can kill me. And Mork's like, hell yeah, I love killing goblins. And this starts a really horrible scene because the goblins all team up. They all grab each other and start to pull. And you have this tug of war match over Mork's body, like his bleeding, bloody body. It's not comfortable. I mentioned earlier the fact that when the... There's this lovely scene when the goblin first grips hold of Malt's arms and that claw digs in and you're like, Malt, you're already hurt. You've already lost an element here. That was a bad decision. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that our heroes are like, sod the rules. Let's pull our swords out. And then they do everything they can to try and break the rules and the locals won't let them. They get like beaten with beaten down to be like, no, don't break the truce. What truce? The truth is that we play... <laughs> I don't want to tell you. This is like... Sometimes people don't get along. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and what essentially happens in this scene, they're pulling on Malt, but then another goblin grabs a local kid, like, legs out mm-hmm. from under the chain, and then all yeah. the townspeople go, sod the stranger, we're going to save our own. And that's the end of Malt, a character we spend about a third of the novel with, you know, who joins the party who, like, you want to see have this de- character development where he gets, starts to understand Kench, and then it's just over. And I know that's the point of the scene. I knew it as I was reading it. The point of the scene is to show how fragile life is. The point of the scene is to show how life isn't fair, how war, you know, ruins people's lives and makes them unable to let go, but it's still a shit scene. Yeah. I'm... Because it, you know what would be a more interesting thing for the book? If this character was still around, he doesn't need to have a heroic death or anything, but just leaving him hanging, having him die at his point in his death, it's not interesting. It reminds me very strongly of moments when, reference something else now, The Walking Dead. Were you a fan of it back in the day? No, I thought the TV show was crap. I liked the comic book though. Okay, TV show went out, but I thought the first four seasons were all right. But it had a real habit of just being like, we're just going to kill off this character randomly. And you get that very mm-hmm. quick shock moment and then immediately you mm-hmm. go, oh wait, so their plot arcs are just don't get finished. That's yeah. and really the thing unsatisfying. Is, and the thing is that with the, with the exception of very few characters in the Walking Dead comic book, when characters died, it was because you had spent a long, long period of time with them. 
like actual years and then when characters die really capriciously it sucks it's really hard like you have a character who's like i'm gonna try and make things work with my girlfriend even though i cheated on her i want to do things right bam he gets shot in the back and you're like fuck i like that character i like the way he was going to go and his art got cut off really capriciously but i got to spend tons of time with him so I got to see where his character might have gone and where his character has been. And now he's dead and I don't get that. That's not what happened here. There's two ways I would have preferred this to have been done. Where, and you still have this mm. scene. This still takes place when the characters are at this point. But, one, we get much more Kinch and Molt on the run-up. On the run-up to this yep. scene, Kinch spends most of his time on the, the romance subplot. He's with Norigal. Mm-hmm. It's about them being in love and that's the focus for a lot of the, you know, page time, word count, on the run-up to this moment. Um, So we don't get that. Like, have them have their character arc. Mm -hmm. Let them have that conversation. Maybe have one of them extend an olive branch, and the other one rebukes it. Probably Kinch. And then they get to this scene, and then Kinch has to go, oh, I'll never get an opportunity, or something like that. Or give Kinch a little more time post this scene to really sit down and work through what his mm-hmm. relationship with Malt was. And you said, uh, you referenced there's two moments like after him. this where Kinch imagines what Malt would say. And I was with you on it. It doesn't sound like Malt. To be honest, I don't really know what Malt sounds like. But he was like, Malt would have a laugh with me. I'm like, Malt hasn't had a joke with you this entire book. What are you on about? Exactly. And there's plenty of occasions where he could have had a fun chat. Because they're from the same place. That was like, this is the guy that like... They're all you know, from the same place. With the, ex- example of, with the exception of Galva, they're all black tongues. They're all from um, gold. Y- yes, but I'm not going to lie. Norigal has a very different upbringing. I think she can be a special case. Yeah. So, but these are two, la- these are two you know, mining town boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there could be some connection there. And also a better opportunity to maybe explore. Wouldn't it be fun? And Here's an idea. If like, because we always get Kinch's perspective. Mm-hmm. How about Malt gives his perspective on the hometown? And what if it's not quite aligning with what Kinch seems to think? I I don't know. I think that would be nice. Why are you against recently? That? Recently, Duncan, I've been rewatching an old favorite show of mine when I have the time, and that sh- show is uh, is Justified. You ever heard of it? Nope. Okay. Justified is a very fun show. It is a serialized neo western set in Kentucky, it's based on a short story by Elmore Leonard. And essentially the big pitch is, is that there are two main characters, one of whom is your hero, Raylan Givens, a US Marshal. He's basically a cowboy. He has a cowboy hat. Very fun to enjoy, played by Timothy Olyphant. The other main character is basically the villain of the show, that being uh, Boyd Crowder, played by Walton Goggins. And much like in plenty of stories about a hero and an antagonist these two have a connection not only do they grow up in the same town they have the same background harlan county they both have families who are involved in crime the thing which drives them apart is the fact that they've now grown up one of them is a lawman and one of them is still a criminal and the entire drama of the show then plays out from that point you have two characters who should be the same person who are different one defining choice has changed them, and that's what you have here. You have Mulk, and you have Kinch. One is a soldier, one is grown up, one is disciplined, one is a thief, one is shady, one is sly, and yet, you never get those, those true moments of tension. You never get these real moments of after their duel, which actually, by the way, I think was really written quite well. 
It's disappointing. It's just disappointing. So you're still on the... It's still a lost opportunity. I think that's the thing. It's not necessarily... No, I did feel it while I was reading it, to be fair, because mm-hmm. I, I'm pre-set at this point to always speculate forward. Where can this character go? What will the author do? Oh, it would be nice if he did this. Oh, but he might be doing that. Oh, he might subvert my expectations. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily about being surprised. It's just something I, I just do. I'm not looking for them to necessarily agree or disagree with what I'm speculating on. Well, with mm-hmm. Malt, it was like he did nothing. <laughs> nothing of real interest. I did like the whaling ship section, though. There was a lot of stuff in there. It's like, it's very obvious that you have done a lot of research into what happens on whaling ships. So I respect that. And I fucking love the Kraken. The Kraken was great. Oh, God. See, now back to the positives. Because that thing, Malt is kind of like my only real negative. That's why I feel like I needed to drill onto the character. But the mm-hmm. episodic nature of this, the whaling ship, the island, being in the mm-hmm. bowels of the goblin ship, the town mm-hmm. where Malt dies, the journey up in the hills, all those little bits just work together so nicely yeah i really enjoyed the whaling ship my personal favorite stop on the journey was the uh tower i haven't written down the gentleman's name he's the uh, gentleman wizard they meet just before they get to the final nation yeah who has the full of full i mean monroe <laughs> should be his name what? because that's what he's up to he is sure, a right. do you mean monroe monroe Monroe. You mean Dr. Moreau? Yeah, Dr. Moreau. Yeah, not Monroe. Tomato, tomato, mate. Um, Marilyn and... Moreau, the <laughs> hideous scientist who also, you know, was in some like it hot. <laughs> um, one of my favourite stops. You talk, like, I love, like I said, the whaling ship felt like, oh yeah, this is a guy who's got maybe historical fiction. He is, understands the time. This, that scene with these, like, um, animal human hybrids i'm like mm. okay this guy's got horror again this guy's creeping yes. me out yes body horror um the i think the point of this scene is mostly to say like oh you know this guy basically won us to war and he's sort of the dr oppenheimer of this world like he created something horrible and evil but maybe it was justified uh i personally think this whole section is like really uh unnecessary to book like i don't think it adds much at all to the story um, the guy says, like, hey, Kinch, maybe I'm your dad. And then he's like, he probably isn't my dad, though. And then he leaves. Uh, and aside from getting, like, the scare of seeing these monstrous stuff, not a lot happens. I think the most thing that happens is that we get another example of how cool magic is in this world. Well, is this the example of how he, like, creates these experiments? And, like, when he ups and moves, he just kind of abandons yeah. them. It's not... I like it. I like the fact that this isn't a good guy. But... When it was humanity versus goblins, and I think this is a really nice theme, it kind of links into the even Kinch's role in the Thief's Guild, which I don't think mm-hmm. we talk about nearly enough. It's like the Taker's Guild, yeah. The Taker's Guild, which is the Thief's Guild. Um, even when you're up against something so other and fearsome as the goblins, it doesn't matter. All of humanity's together. Even, even the yeah, worst of it, like yeah, they man. all need to come together. Oppenheimer in cinemas this July. <laughs> But I know, I do appreciate what you're saying. Like, this scene could have been removed. To be honest, mm-hmm. the scene when, when Malt died, like, Malt as a character, if he hadn't come along, that moment could have been removed. There's a lot of yeah, moments where on a plotting a point could have been removed, but then it wouldn't have been the story. It wouldn't have been as good a book. You need these kind of episodic moments. No, I disagree. All of those scenes that you've just mentioned, they could have been cut and this book would have been just as good. I love this book. I think it's very good. But this is by no means a perfect book. There's loads of stuff that's wrong with it. I disagree with you strongly. 
I know you okay. think they could have been cut in terms of the plot. And to be honest, I would have liked them to have a bigger impact on Kinch as a character. Because there are some yeah, things exactly. that you can't cut because Kinch as a character grows in those scenes. How does he grow in this scene? In in the Oppenheimer scene. Yes. He. Mm-hmm. He sees a creature that's meant to represent his god. Yes. I don't know what effect that has on his characterization, to be mm, honest. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But do you know what? When they're walking away and the little, like, half-bear, half-man baby thing is, like, crying in the rain and waving at them, it hit my yeah, emotions, sad, so I'm happy. It is sad. It, it's, it's true. It is an emotionally impactful scene, but it didn't need to be in the book. Um, it just doesn't earn its place. I, but talking about his god, I realize it's really important we haven't mentioned this book. And that's luck. Luck. Yeah, his what? Kinch's main power is luck. And right from the start, if you haven't read this book and you've just been going through and you're like, I'll just see where this goes, you might think that sounds like a really bad power for a book because that just means good stuff can just happen to your main character and they don't need to have any agency in it. Oh, the guy you need to walk in through the door is just going to walk in through the door. But no, 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 no. This is really good. This is really well-written power. It's almost not a power. It's almost like just a slight kind of... Well, I say it's not a power. It's almost like he's just going to kind of see into the future more. It's less that exactly. he can use his luck. He just goes, is my life in the next week going to be good or bad? And then when it's like, yes. it's going to be shit, he has to... And I love the fact that it's like, that's not a, what can I do differently? It's a, oh, damn it moment you just have to roll up and go turtle mode like there's there's no really avoiding just means don't take risks you're about to get messed up get ready for things to be bad when this is first introduced i actually originally thought that this might be actually explained in the laws of the magic Mm. um i was like oh okay is this like some weird like magical power maybe on like a like a hereditary made like a bloodline power like where's this going to link in my first thought Mm. goes to um, I don't believe you've read it. Uh, Final Empire. By whom? Uh, Brandon Sanderson. Oh, yeah. He has a no, character. I've never read any Brandon Sanderson. I oh, really should one day. Except the first issue of White Sands. Uh, I read that. I was like, this is Naruto. <laughs> and I saw reading Well, there's a character in that. The second thing on this podcast, which is Naruto. And none of the previous ones were Naruto. <laughs> there's a character in that that has their luck. And they say, I can use my luck. It, my luck takes me time to like come back, but I know that I can use it like a power. Gotcha. So it's, it's a, a resource, resource you can expend. what it eventually gets discovered by, as he writes incredibly hard magic systems, is luck is actually just that character's understanding of a much more complex magic system that eventually gets explained to them. But as like a child, okay. they just call it their luck. When I do that, I mm. seem to always get lucky. Because they don't realise they're using like but it's a magical actually power. affecting causality yeah, or something. It's actually it's a magical power affecting what's well, there's uh, precisely it's affecting like other people's reactions. Like when they push their luck, they're more this likely is, to get people to agree with them. Yeah. But This is not a hard magic system. This is a lovely, soft, gooey, chocolatey magical system. There are sometimes people just have powers. And then there are times when people will store spells inside other people. And there are times when, like, people can do magic, but it's, like, it's taxing. They need to do, like, a special magical ritual to it. But if you can perform that magical ritual again, you don't actually need to be magic in yourself. You just need to follow the right set of instructions. There's basically, like, three different 
nebulous, messy systems going on. My favorite is the simplest, uh, not because of its importance to the story. I think it will be important to the next book, but Kinch is what's called a scyther. He can read any language without ever having been taught it. And I like it purely because of the anecdote he uses to explain it. I love this joke. Sorry, we're we going to talk about this. this. Is the beer joke? Yes, exactly. Oh, exactly. Lo- like, it's, love this everything joke. about that scene is great. So this is the idea. So these people obviously are incredibly valuable, and the takers mm. guild, the thieves guild, they're trying to hunt them out. And if you get find out you have this power, they're going to send you to work in the archives. And Kinch's like, you'll want for nothing but your own freedom. And he's like, that's one want too many. And mm. what they do to try and catch these He's people, such a good writer. <laughs> they put signs up in the bar in like ancient and forgotten languages where it's like, yeah. get a free beer, just ask. It's so, yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's so, it's so quick. It's witty. That would be wonderful. Because also that would be like, you could even imagine the visuals of it. I always like seeing it with Kinch. It's like, you would sort of like see the plain text and it would just morph into like plain Galvian or English, you know, for him. Mm. And that's his worldview. I was like, yes. Also, it's very obvious that um, <laughs> that the author plays a lot of Dungeons and Dragons because a really important part of the magic in this world is that magic doesn't like iron. So the reason why wizards don't wear armor in this world is explained in text. And Galva has a suit of chainmail, which has like special release mechanisms, which she has to pull off in order to use her one spell, which is releasing her war COVID. And it also explains that one aspect you get in Dungeons and Dragons, which is once you get a sufficiently powerful wizard, like they can't be locked up unless you use other magic. So it's like, no, you just stick them in iron chains. Mm-hmm. What are yeah, they going to do true. about it? Yeah, that's true. So, and it explains all prisons even, because even um, Kinch has his cantrips. Jordy, what what is the origin? What is the etymology of cantrip as a word? You know what? I wanted to I wanted to Google it whilst listening to this book, but I forgot to. I don't know what the origin of cantrip is. Well, there's a question for the audience. Please reach out to us on our Instagram and no, tell I'm me what right now. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I've got to know. I love etymology. It's a Scottish word for a prank. How has that made the jump? When were they writing like D and D third edition and went? Th- Third edition. What's a what's a really tiny spell going to be called? Well, they're so rubbish. They're basically just a prank. Mm-hmm. Cantrip. Because to be honest, before I came across it in D and always thought a cantrip was some sort of um, uh, like a booby trap, like a trip, like a trip, a trip wire, or yeah, yeah, yeah. That something. would be that would be. It's like a trick. Well, that's all right then. So yeah, Kinch has his cantrips, which are like the learnt spells. They mm. has to just memorize and just knows. I love that they keep talking like, so what can you do? And he's like, well, I can open a door. Because I'm a thief. That's what yeah. my magic does. And that's what yeah. we were trained yeah. in. He's got all his thief magic. I think we need to talk more about the Taker's Guild because they're way more important to the story than I think we really implied. Because, and here's the thing, Dunk. I'm not a big fan of thieves' guilds. I'm not a big fan of them in, in, in fantasy. I, I've never actually seen them done seriously and well. I've seen them done well in Terry Pratchett's books, but I've never seen them done seriously and well. I think it's a very interesting concept, isn't it? Having an organisation of dishonest people who mm. take part in a dishonest trade. Um, obviously, yeah, yeah, there's no organisations of dishonest people. That isn't like most organisations. <laughs> um, 
but to show how they like act with sort of within the law as well i find really kind of interesting and the fact that mm-hmm. common day thievery is like their lowest rung it's like yeah that's sort of something we operate but we don't really even need to operate at that level anymore yeah hang on let me look at my list okay um low-hanging fruit joke about politicians low-hanging joke about the police low-hanging joke about corporations uh yeah that'll do you got them all oh that's good to say oh uh, lawyers 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 too um, when I think about Theseus, obviously you've got Terry Pratchett, which I like how it, it they kind of um, phrase it in Terry Pratchett's world, in this world, of like, well, it's better to have organised crime than disorganised crime. And that's the joke kind of too. And it's like, well, everyone's got to pay their bit to the Thieves Guild. The only mm-hmm. other real example that I've come up against is in like Elder Scrolls. Um, playing ESO it, at the it, moment, But it's bad. It's it. bad in Elder Scrolls. Like, it's stupid. It's just like literally some people hanging out in a sewer um, and there's no real understanding as to why these people actually, like, cooperate and get along. Um, I think if you go back to Oblivion, there's a bit more to it. It's more meant to be a Robin Hood role. That That's it. That's all I've got. The The Grey Fox in Oblivion is meant to be more of a, a Robin Hood figure. You know, you steal from the rich, you give to the poor. You're actually not allowed to mm. steal from people in, like, the slums. They're like, that's not good thievery. Like, they barely have anything, so... Also, why would you want to? Duncan, when Elder Scrolls 6 comes out, do you think it's going to be good? I don't think it's going to be good. I don't think it's going to be that good, to be honest. I'm quite, it's quite upsetting, really, when I kind of had that realisation. I don't know why people still play Skyrim. I generally don't know. Like, there are so many fucking games. It came out, like, 12 years ago. Okay, well, I started playing ESO in the last three weeks. Fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> oh, stupid fly. You said that to me for a sec. Um... <laughs> I don't really want to hunt it down. Duncan, do you have problems with me killing flies? No. Alright, so that's where the vegetarianism ends, huh? Oh yes, it does. I'm I'm also, I, I will kill spiders. Alright, Duncan, uh, give me a list of animals it's okay to kill. Spiders. Okay. Flies. Millipedes? No, not a millipede. S- snails. Not a snail. Wow. Unless they're getting near your vegetables. Daddy long legs. Yeah. Interesting. Kill them. Alright. Don't eat them, mate. That's my main rule. I, who's gonna eat them? Oh, right. You just mean don't eat animals, okay? I thought, don't, like, don't eat no, any long mammals. Jordy. Like, <laughs> Ma- don't, don't eat mammals and birds and probably reptiles. Or f- try not to eat fish. I know it's hard. Duncan didn't say oh, I couldn't God, eat escargot. Let's do this thing, people. <clears throat> Alright. My rules are nebulous. It's not hard. It's not a hard magic system, mate. All right. So I'm an interesting boat. I do enjoy the world that they created in terms of the video game world. It, I think it's really interesting. But the thing is, like, Skyrim's never even really where my, like, I resonated. My first Elder Scrolls was Oblivion. So, and I played that to death. I played, like, 300 hours into Oblivion. But then I was like, I'm done. And I stopped playing it in, like, 08 and moved on. And I had a similar experience with Skyrim. It's like, yeah, I played, like... 150 hours and then i was like i feel <laughs> done so i stopped playing it and moved on and regardless of the fact i do think i saw a great interview where uh one of the first i think his name's todd yes um we're talking about like people like why do you keep re-releasing skyrim and he just just like uh because you keep buying it yeah consumers of video games that are their own worst enemies <laughs> um in a sad way true and horse armor will always stand a testament to that 
So the Takers Guild, like I said, it's an institution. Everyone knows it. Everyone runs it. What's interesting about this institution, though, I love, is the level of secrecy within itself. There's a great bit when Kinch even describes, he's like, you don't know if you went to the true Takers Guild. Like, there are, like, dummy institutes set up for effectively the dumb people. They're like, nope, you're not good enough to actually get Mm -hmm. in on our secrets. So we're going to send you to this one. Um, and like even Kinch has a moment. It's like, did I even go to the do, the skills I taught? Are they even the true taker yeah. skills abilities, or are they just teach me like the B list powers? Yeah, they basically like control everything. And a huge part of this book and this series is going to be about like trying to exist in a world that is so constantly you're so constantly under their observation. You have to play by their rules. Like all the sex workers work for them, all the taverns owe money to them, all the thieves in the world, and there are a lot of thieves are trained by the take skill, and you're supposed to fail. Kinch is not expected to to succeed in paying off his debts. He's expected to become essentially a wage slave. Which obviously is terrifying, and it's also scary because everything's in their pocket. There's nothing you can go to. There's no escaping the fact once mm. you initially signed up. And I often really kind of like the fact that we don't actually really get the moment where Kinch signs up like that's the scene that i would love to see mm-hmm. where K- the initial sales pitch when's the moment that bloke showed up what are you King talking about there, there there is there is this exact scene it's an incredibly lengthy chapter which is just one character's monologue getting him to join the guild is there yes oh, i misremember this yes when before or after it's the boat right after, it's yeah on the boat i don't remember this scene geordie I think you made Duncan, it up. Duncan, oh my god. Well, your page is stuck together or something. There's a huge scene where it's it's all dialogue and there's no, uh, there's no prose at all. It's just his memory of the initial sales pitch to get him to join the guild instead of going to the war. No, you're going to have to my memory on this one, mate. Do you not remember this? I actually don't remember this. Do I read it very insane. late at night? Maybe I read this the last chapter I read before falling asleep. What the hell? So you don't remember this guy, like, producing a coin from behind Kinch's ear and him going to the ro- to an island and, like, sitting there and thinking hard about what his future's going to be? <gasps> no, no, I remember the island. Yeah, he steals a boat okay. and, like, rows out to an island. Yes. <laughs> like, and you remember the guy now, right? There is a bloke. Vaguely. There is a bloke. Yes, okay. What the hell, Duncan? All right. <laughs> Well, my reliability in this is not good. I should not read late at night. It's not good. It's just so no, good. I was just enjoying it so much, Jordy. I just kept reading way past my yeah, bedtime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Try and train this into you being a... a, a whatever. Whatever. I, I'll, I'll do the podcast, Duncan. And here's something I like about the Thieves Guild. It's the fact that you can never escape her eye. And there's always someone following you. At a certain point in the story, we find out that... Kinch is being followed by an assassin. He's been sent on this quest, but someone is there to keep an eye on him. Yes. Sesk. Seska? Sesta. Uh, Sesta. The assassin adept. Adept. Sesta. Yeah. I'll butcher that. One sec. Sesta. Yeah. Sesta, the assassin adept. I'm not using the new take, Duncan. <laughs> if you had remembered the chapter, I would have used the new take, but I'm not using it. This was an interesting character. Firstly, obviously, it's nice to see someone who's, like, beholden to the guild and is watching Kinch. But I did like the fact that whenever she was there, I did kind of think to the back of my head, like, you probably have a similar story to Kinch, you know? Your your free will in this is probably is slightly, you know, I know you're more dedicated and you'll see the mission through. But I imagine that you must be in a similar situation of debt and servitude to the organisation. 
I disagree. I think Sestra is a true believer. I think she is so indoctrinated by the guild that she is the the Jungian shadow self. She is the dark shadow to Ken. She is wholeheartedly in on the game. I disagree. And even if that's where she is, I just couldn't help feel, and I'm not saying this is anything necessary in the book to really support this for her, but Mm. I just can't help feel that everyone must have started their journey once upon a time in Kinch's shoes. Yeah, Yes, Duncan, that's what happens before she dies. Like, he looks in her eyes, he sees the scared little girl she used to be, and he can't bring herself to kill her. But, she's been doing it for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. Exactly, but that's only, that's like the reveal at the end. I'm talking, like, from the moment she's introduced, I always had that kind of picture in my head, like, you know, where were this character? This character probably started from that innocent place. So, although she's antagonistic so what this is where she is so i think that from an external reader's perspective i had a greater empathy for a character when things weren't going well you for can her do that, I was like, and she's still the true believer and the dark shadow self to kinch listen we all make mistakes and i think you're being a bit harsh on her she has some really great moments she's clearly very good at her job she punches out norigal's heart <laughs> Well, that was a heightened moment of tension, I would agree. But her and that Kinch had banter. That fight is really good. Uh, that fight scene is amazing. And she car- she it travels really around good. in a cute little cat. So That's right. That is- she is stored inside a blind cat. Which Kinch- Duncan, what do you think of Bully Boy? I love Bully Boy. I thought, what a wonderful... I think Bully Boy was unimpressive. I thought he'd be a lot cuter than he was, but he's just... He's just fine. He's just a fine cat. I think what I liked about Billy Boy, so Billy Boy's a cat which the assassin isn't the cat. She simply can go inside her like a little hairball. Um, go inside him, sorry, like a little hairball and mm. see through his eyes and drive his motions. But Billy Boy is a cat, like independently. Yes. Uh, and he's a blind cat and he's has these sort of like dumb moments and it's sort of like, oh, he keeps showing up. Is there something special about him? But maybe it's just... Maybe I'm becoming more of a cat lover. But I like the fact that Kinch has this, that he has this little creature through the first part of the book that he's just looking after because Kinch is kind of nice. That's what I like about Billy Boy. Yes, it shows... it's a literal save the cat moment. And that's really good for Kinch's characterization because it's the it's that thing that really shows us, okay, this is where Kinch is at. This is why at the end of the book, Kinch is, well, not even at the end of the book, this is why later on Kinch is going to be betraying the Taker's Guild and doing their spoilers and doing what he feels is morally right because Kinch will save the cat. Mm-hmm. And Buddy Void is a cute cat, bit being blind. And, oh, Dordie, so do you have the acknowledgements at the end of your audiobook? No, my audiobook did not come with acknowledgements. Right. I read the acknowledgements at the end of my uh, physical version and Mm -hmm. there's a real life cat. Uh, Christopher Brulin, he writes about that apparently in 2014, a blind cat actually did like show up at his house and he adopted it and took it in. And I was like, there's a real bully boy out there. That's nice. Uh, But I will have to say though, uh, Christopher, what is a a roar? roar? Like when the cat's like, Oh, I just made the noise. Okay, no, it's row. Row. Is that what? I just, I. It's a row. Row. Maybe okay. I didn't like the way the. I don't like the word row. I'm just going to say as a onomatopoeia for a cat. 
I'm like, what are you, what's he you doing? Nyan? Yeah. Kind of would have, actually. Maybe that's just I'm so used to hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we just learned something new about Duncan, but hey-ho. Back to the Taker's Guild? Nah, I've said everything I've got to say about Taker's Guild. All I want to add to the Taker's Guild is that I like the fact that this, they're nebulous, they're not a character. Like, we, you know, Seth said that she's the person we're fighting against, but I like it when the villain is a big organisation. And I like it that the Taker's Guild is like mm-hmm. the villain of this, I feel the villain of the book, yet the goblins are so mm-hmm. <laughs> onstrous. You're like, who are we fighting here? Are the men or the goblins? Yeah, the thing is, at the end of this book series, if it ended up being eight books long, probably won't if it ended up being eight books long the goblins would not be defeated at the end the takers guild i fully agree and i wouldn't be surprised based on the events of this book and what we find out between the takers guild and the uh, giant wars completely separate um if it eventually gets revealed that all oh, the takers guild they're somehow behind the goblins you know in some capacity i, I would think they would everything would link in a bit they might have killed the horses i know and when that was revealed the blood, the blood did boil. Yeah, poor horses, poor condor. Something that kind of leads us to this saying we want to see where this oh, goes. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. No doubt. Now I've already um, obviously followed up on what Christopher's been doing. Yes. Um, he has basically said, "Give me time, please." I wasn't expecting this reaction. <laughs> um, and he's actually already kind of announced that he's currently re- working on. Um, not an exact sequel, but a prequel book, or at least a book oh. set. It's not. It is set before the events, but you know you should read it next. It, it's it's going to drive things forward, but it's set before events in the Daughters' War. So it's set during the Daughters' War. Or it's set before the Daughters' War. I believe it's set during the Daughters' War. All right. Well, I am interested in seeing the Daughters' War. I don't. I tend to not like prequels, but uh, but that's more in the. I don't want to see Kinch's backstory. I want to see something more interesting, and that does sound interesting because the Daughters' War sounds. I do think really cool. I do think with prequels though, there's a there's a difference between I've written a completed series and now I'm going to tell you a prequel story. Than the nature of telling my story means it's going to be outside chronological order. Yeah, uh, I I personally disagree. I feel like um there is a certain type of prequel out there where people are like um you should start at book zero, not book one, uh because. That's the uh, the real order to read it in. Like, people talk about this with Throwing a Glass. There's a book called Assassin's Blade, and you don't need to read it. I've never read it. I know I don't need to read it. There's nothing of value in that book, because the backstory is thoroughly explained throughout the books. There's no way. There's no way there's anything of value in that book. My biggest point about all of this, I'm like, hey, listen, if book zero was necessary, then book one wouldn't have been as successful as it was. Bingo. I just don't know how you can see around it. There is only one series I can think of where I do recommend you read it in like more of a chronological order, and that's Elric of Minute Mi- 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 Nib. Dude, that's the Elric series by Michael Moorcock. Say it. Um, very special case. Whole episode. <laughs> Say it. Mel Nibone. Wrong. Mel Nibone. <laughs> yeah. Mel Nibone. Yeah. Yes. I would also. There is one series I would also recommend reading like that, and that is the um. <laughs> actually, I kind of, I kind of don't. I would recommend reading um, the Shadowhunter books in chronological order, but just read the prequels and don't read the actual series because it's just a lot better. The Cassandra Clare had just become a much better writer by the time she got around to the prequels, and there's no need to read the actual series. I have heard um, similar things about the Dritz books. Apparently the prequels trilogy is like 
top tier. That's interesting. To Icewind Dale series. Uh, I like but the Icewind Dale series, that. so we shall see at some point in the future. We're definitely going to read the Dredd's book, Sunken. There's no getting away from it. Oh, looking forward to it, mate. I mean, I mean, I can only make you, I can only make you re- read one, <laughs> but and then after that, it's anyone's game. It's fine. Do you know what I always think? Like, considering the amount of fantasy that I read, how still so challenged I always seem to be at fantasy words and character names. Duncan, it's a really like, important part of this podcast now. If you got good at it, I feel like it would actually damage our branding. <laughs> well, then I will not try to get good at it. That is a promise. Well. Don't try too hard. Don't hurt your pretty little head about it. Any other thoughts you want to give out to it? Because to be honest, I feel like I've put this book across. I think people know this is a book about how it's being told. And there are quibbles in the plotting and some of the characters. Major quibbles. And like, there are issues in this book. But the way it's told, the characterization and the world building are so good that it carries you through. And even if you're, you look back at it a bit and go, that was pointless or that could be done better... Mm. For 98% of the novel, you're still having a good time. I certainly agree. Very good book. Would recommend only for people who like dark fantasy. It is pretty dark. Yes, that horror influence is definitely there in some of the scenes. Like, there is... I got some visceral reactions, Mm, mm. like, out of me. It Either emotionally, um, with those small cute creatures, like it horribly mistreated mm-hmm. and or in the the scene with the goblins where i was just like this is body horror but body horror which just not showing me enough to make it even worse yeah expertly done uh, but also to be clear though i don't think it's trying to scare you like it's not trying to be a horror it is a fantasy. no you're not going to get scared walking around the dark edge. after reading this book but that edge is there mm. and you be warned Duncan, I've come to the end of my prepared remarks when i say prepared remarks i mean the stuff i'm interested in talking about I think it's time to talk about what we're going to read next time. So, Geordie, I'm going to have to be candid and apologise. I'm I'm taking a little holiday. As am I. Um, I'm heading down south. Mm-hmm. And I'm heading Big up north. Big books. So, there's actually going to be a little bit of a break um, between this and our next episode. But, don't see that as a fault. Don't see it as an issue, a problem. It's like they say at work. It's an opportunity. Indeed. So I'm going to pick a slightly longer book. A long week. one, a big boy, a strange and normal. Oh yes, not maybe quite that big, but I it, we're going to. It's not just a big book; uh-huh. it's a big series. Oh, we're God. going to crack in into one of the biggest names in fantasy. Now, Duncan, you have to bear in mind about series is that I get to make a decision about whether read the next book in this series. Oh, oh, Geordie, oh, I am too smart for you. Oh, no. But you see, we will be reading a standalone in a shared universe. Oh, no. We're not reading a, a Marvel movie novelization. <laughs> Don't think they exist. We're going to start into the Brando Sando universe, oh, a book in the Cosmere. Oh, no. He's done it. I knew it was coming. I knew one day he'd get me. But finally, finally, he's pinned me down. He's going to make me read Brandon Sanderson. Now, the book I have picked is Warbreaker. Okay. One of his standalone novels set in the Cosmere. Geordie, what do you know? I don't know anything about this book. That's perfect. I know it's about war. And, and does it break? It's probably about hard magic systems. And there's probably some Mormonism in it. How close am I, Duncan? You're not wrong on any point. I see. I Mormonism, see. Might have some, uh, Mormonism might have some uh, metaphors put over it. Um, a light... Not even a, a blanket, just sort of a tablecloth to hide it. 
Um, yeah, Warbreaker. Now, I'm picking this with you. I, I, a lot of thought went into this. You know, I didn't just pick one at random. I thought about you. And I thought, well, Elantris was his first standalone. I think it's getting a sequel. But it's the first one published. And it, you know, it's not quite... I think he's just a little bit longer. He wasn't quite on his top game yet. And then I thought, well, why not Final Empire? Why not Mistborn? Mm. One of his most famous works. Why not that YA epic fantasy trilogy heroic fantasy trilogy that's one everyone tells um, me i will enjoy yes you will um but we're not reading that one but i've already read that one <laughs> no i've already read it oh, no point in me reading it for me um and then obviously there's a way of kings first of the stormlight archives this is the fantasy epic that when it's finished it's going to stand up there with mazalan and wheel of time and game of thrones very long and finished so I, I have faith in Van Sanderson. Uh, but yet again, it's long. It's epic. I've already read it. So we're going to pick the one I haven't read. Hooray. Which is a standalone Warbreaker. Cool. Um, and I think that should hopefully find a nice introduction to his writing style and the shared universe. I appreciate uh, the fact is... a lot that you've never read this, which means that you can absolutely not guarantee that I will enjoy it. And this... No, def- no clue. Def- I might not enjoy the it. The first step could be a huge disaster. I mean, yes. If it was, I would still probably get you to read the first Mistborn later down the line. I mean, you can't... I'm, I'm gambling you here. You did say I'm that this my is a luck, series, Dordie. Duncan. Doesn't that mean that I get to choose whether to read the next one? I think you'll find it's a shared universe with multiple series in it. Yeah. Check the small print. Duncan can make me read any Star Wars book. It's true. I gave him too much power. Just like the Senate gave Oprah Palpatine too much power. No! Um, I'm really looking forward for this one. I hope you enjoy it. I hope I enjoy it. And I hope all our listeners also enjoy it. And where can they message us to tell us that they do enjoy it? Well, they can reach out to us on our Instagram, Is This Just Fantasy Podcast. If you're listening to this and you don't follow us on Instagram, please do and like the post and just say even a few words just say we i hate you and this book sucks oh god that's still just, something don't solicit hate mail what are you doing um you could also reach us on our gmail is just fantasy podcast at gmail.com send your thoughts and opinions in we'd love to hear from you i'm just trying to start a flame war that's you we would like to hear from you there's a horse about to go by my house before it gets too loud and also i start crying because of extinct horses i've been your host geordie bailey And I've been your host, Duncan Nickel. So long. Bye.